Hello and welcome to Warehouse 69, the Fediverse's finest Warehouse 13 podcast. I'm the internet's beloved Princess Grace, and with me as always is my co-host Timmy. How you doing, Timmy? I'm doing pretty good. How are you today, Grace? Well, let me tell you, I'm jazzed about my name change, and I am pleased as punch to talk about Season 1, Episode 7, Implosion, which is just a hell of an episode. Yeah, this is a, this is a nice episode because we get to kind of establish a uh an overarching story which up until this point we've pretty much only done sort of monster of the week type stuff where it's all a self-contained sort of story mm-hmm. which is like this one was really dense like usually i don't have that much written down about these but like this one just kept going which like hell yeah it's picking up yeah, and it starts to establish some of our intrigue. We get to uh, learn a little more about one of our more mysterious characters. Mm-hmm. We get a lot of Artie backstory today, which is good. I like Artie. Right. Even though he sold secrets to the Russians? Ooh. Oh. Turns out that's not even the case. But they kind of yeah, uh, right. they kind of changed that a little a little later. But we open on Pete, and, and he is uh, playing with a sword and pretending he's in a uh, dubbed action movie. Yeah, he does immediately touch the sword, which, as far as he knows, does something like... Like, is an artifact, right? Like, as far as Pete knows, this sword does something incredibly dangerous. I mean, he's in the warehouse. It's sitting on, like, its own little pedestal in the middle of Artie's office. It screams artifact to me. Yeah, exactly. It's not exactly how I would recommend storing an artifact, especially with Pete working there, but, like, it's still not something that you should assume that you should play with. Exactly. Like, like, maybe it's me, like... I would, if I saw, like, an unattended katana, I would not, like, pick it up and start swinging it around. Especially not if I worked in the secret government warehouse full of shit that can kill you. And I definitely would not do a weird racist accent while swinging it around, Pete. (laughs) Yeah, I I am pretty impressed with with Eddie's ability to deliver a line while pretending to be saying a lot more words. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it, it's extremely over the top how he contorts his face, but it's uh, <laughs> it's some nice visual comedy. Yeah, he's playing to his strengths. This is not the first time he's done this, right? So, uh, Pete has uh, Micah walks in and is commenting on Pete playing with things, and Artie walks in and scolds him. For, like, pressing the tip into the concrete? Like, yeah, don't do that. (laughs) Yeah, like, these things are supposed to be sharp. Don't blunt them. I believe Micah's line was specifically, is there anything you don't play with? And Pete says, no, no, there isn't, or something like that. (laughs) Right. And Artie explained that he had uh, crafted it himself in record time, too. Yeah, with the help of things... And it is a near-perfect replica of the 
Honjo Masamune or no? Ma- I didn't write down the name of the sword. Masamune? Uh, I don't know. But it's a... I believe it's a real-ish. Like, it sort hey, of hey. blends the mythological and real aspects. Yeah, the the sword is... Uh, there is, the legend of this sword exists in the real world. Right. And it's that sort of... It's from a period in history where that is heavily mythologized. It's a period of, like, these great larger-than-life heroes that are, you know... They're probably real people that existed, but they're not... You know, they are given supernatural abilities in the retelling. Right. The sword very likely existed. Yeah. However, it almost certainly didn't have any sort of mystical properties. Yeah. Unless it did. Maybe things were a whole lot more mystical back then. (laughs) Well, yeah, like you take a, whatever he said about it, like, maybe that's just what happens if you take a sword, fold it a zillion times, such the blade is mere atoms thick. Right. To get more abstract with it, like, anything that has become the embodiment of that many man-hours of work... Whether or not it has any sort of special properties does sort of take on its own life. Yeah, especially given that it was wielded by emperors and whatnot. Right. So, where are we? Oh, yeah. Uh, After Artie has explained that uh, this is a replica and they're expected to do a secretive swapsies on the actual original sword. I was really hoping this would be a heist episode. Like, I have a soft spot for heist shit, but this is not that. It was not meant to be. They kept tempting it, and then it just... It didn't quite go there. (sighs) Maybe someday my prince will come. But, uh... Artie is sending them to Washington, D.C., where the sword is being given to the U.S. president. Like, I'm not sure why Japan would be giving it to us. Like, it seems like something that they should definitely hold on hold on to as a part of their history. But it's like being given to the Smithsonian or something. I don't know. Yeah. I guess it sounds a little better than uh, the way most artifacts end up in museums. Yeah, maybe because it's, as we find out later, the Americans also have the other part of the sword. Right, which maybe, was given to them in the uh, Woodrow Wilson administration? Yeah, the 20s. Yeah. By the Wilson administration. To the w- Woodrow Wilson administration. Uh, probably right before he started World War One. Well, not started, but brought the US into World War One. Right. I'm trying to think where Japan was politically at that time. I know historically they had tried to uh be pretty isolationist. Mm-hmm. But the floodgates kinda opened at some point and they honestly had a whole lot of social issues because of the sudden influx of foreign trade. Hmm. Because yeah, the U.S. was neutral in World War One for a long time as well. Right. 
what though I suspect it was that kind of it was that fake kind of neutral where you still sell weapons to England. Right. I'm sure the bankers and the arms manufacturers were far from neutral. Mm-hmm. However, that's because the bankers and the arms manufacturers were making money off of the war. Yeah, weird how that happens. Yeah, it's, it's not uh, weird. That's kind of how it goes. And I mean, I think being such a uh, Eurocentric war, U.S. policy was never really all that interested in going off to fight wars over there. But, you know, eventually you get dragged into it by your uh by your allies in the area and they they intercepted the zimmerman note which was a a whole thing they couldn't really sit down after that but to get back to uh get back to the episode at hand we have uh they are to fly out to dc do the swap snag it bag it tag it you know the drill but uh on the way out uh Pete uh thanks Artie for the ticket by saying arigato <laughs> and Artie, Art- Artie says something back in Japanese right they have a whole little like little weeb conversation no he responds with uh bitteschön in german oh <laughs> so ah <laughs> uh, that's that's even better Artie speaks pretty quietly this episode, which is weird because he has a lot of lines and most of them are important. Right. I have noted here mysterious murderation. Yeah, because they, uh, yeah, because the next really, because next thing we know, we're, they're at the Japanese embassy and then they're talking about how, uh, oh no, there's a, we see some. Oh yeah, this oh, is where oh, we have the scene with like the yeah the this is weird where we guy meet... and the yeah this is where we meet the back of the head of our big bad guy for this episode yeah who is uh purchasing By some mysterious canisters from a man right. who says something about you know oh you or your partner you and your partner said you'd never be back and then. Uh, our, uh, little goblin-esque, uh, electronics man, uh, s- you know, sells our mysterious villain a bunch of big fancy cylinders, and then our villain vapor turns him into dust with some big green fire. Yep. And then we, uh, we get to visit the Japanese embassy, where, uh, Pete and Micah are trying to just sort of get a look at where the sword is, make a plan, do do some heist shit. Yeah, they are. They mentioned that uh, this is the first time in a long time they've actually done something to protect the president. <laughs> yeah. So we uh, we hear a sort of uh, whining noise, and then suddenly they're being pulled into a set of double doors with a bunch of air rushing from underneath. Bright and, light. Right. And they essentially get knocked out, and Pete, as he's on his way to uh, to La La Land, 
sees someone, but not very clearly. He's pretty sure it's one of the uh, Japanese guys at the Japanese embassy. Which, which is, that's a pretty <laughs> fair assumption, I guess. Like Right. But he basically could only describe this uh, guy as not a chick. Yeah. Which okay, Pete. I, I don't know if it's, you know, just based on what he was able to remember or if it's just that's the level of interest he had in this guy. Yeah, I, I read it as like Pete has described him as a guy and like. I think he was restating that fact for Artie because, you know. Right. He didn't have anything else to add. Yeah. And, you know, and Pete's the kind of guy who's, you know, he doesn't have a, a very nuanced conception of gender. Like, you know, Pete right. unironically thinks there's two of them. <laughs> when, in fact, there are at least three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Pete, Micah, and Artie. Um, <laughs> uh. I'll be honest, for a second there when they like, you know, got pulled towards the door and knocked out, I thought they I thought this was gonna be the body swap episode. But yeah, uh, I guess that's later. I made a mistake. I was certain it was going to be the next episode, but I started watching it after this one and it's not. Fiendish. <laughs> well, I'll just be on my toes then. But yeah, our uh Pete describes the explo the event as an explosion in reverse and this makes Artie uh visibly vexed and Lena comments on it she says she hasn't seen that it, uh expression on him before mm. and so Artie so describes it as the past rearing its ugly head ooh so he's clearly got an inkling of an idea yeah, he seems to know what's going on, but of course, does not tell anyone about it. Right, he's not a big fan of sharing with the rest of the class. Yeah. Oh, and guess what? What? Our, our favorite, Dickinson's back. Though we don't see him until, because uh, first the, uh, you know, Pete and Mike have been uh, questioned by the Japanese embassy guys forever. And then Bob, hey, can we go in that room? It's like, no, I, we have one more question for you. You know, if you're here, why are there also other Secret Service guys here? And then it's Dickinson time. Right. Yeah, we meet our uh, our old pal, the least specific character uh, possible. <laughs> Just like absolutely the most generic character we've seen in this hey. show. Hi, I'm Mr. Secret Serviceman. I'm a... White, I'm an old white guy in a suit. Do I have a second attribute? I am on a computer sometimes. And Dickinson tells them to go the hell away because they're stepping on his toes and he can't really, uh, he can't really abide that. He's still a little upset that they, uh, left. He misses them. They don't even call anymore. Huh. <laughs> Which they explain is on strict instructions from Marty. Uh, I'm sorry, I uh, it's illegal. I can't. Uh, and then Dickinson's mad at him. He tells him to get out of town, right? 
And the next right. time we see Pete and Micah, they are absolutely not out of town. Yeah, they definitely uh, took that into consideration, put a little pin in it, said, uh, we'll come back to that one. And they're going back around to work out what the hell happened with this uh, explosion in reverse. Mm-hmm. As they're staking out the place, making a plan on how they're going to uh, get into the scene of the crime, Artie just sort of turns up next to him. Yep. And then uh, he asked Pete and Mike about their plans, and they simultaneously describe completely different plans. Right. And this is another one of those times that, like, you can really establish a timeline here uh, on what's going on. And it's, it would be shockingly difficult for, like, Artie to just show up there. Because mm-hmm. he was depicted in South Dakota when the uh, implosion grenade went off, when they came to and were being held, and, like, they get released by Dickinson, and uh, Artie is there probably within three hours. Yeah, which... Like, night has fallen. Yeah, But it's hard to imagine it wasn't afternoon at the time. Yeah, and, like, Pete and Mike absolutely have to act fast because, like, the Secret Service does not want them in D.C. anymore. Right. Yeah, it's not like there could have been another day slipped in there. In fact, they were concerned that uh, they were losing evidence whenever uh, they had not gotten eyes on it yet. Yeah. So... Yeah, Artie is able to travel extremely quickly, just because it's plot convenient. Yeah, like, we don't know if, uh, we don't know if we're supposed to notice this. Like, we we do know about, like, a teleportation artifact in the warehouse. Like, we had that whole thing with Redicus's compass. Yeah, but, uh, specifically, I think that establishes how unlikely it is that it's a teleportation artifact because i think if they wanted to do teleportation they could make it happen they could you know come up with some sort of distinction that makes it different from reticus's deal but like i don't think they do i don't think it's ever all that you know i don't think they ever address the fact that uh a lot of these characters seem to be able to fly to locations within an hour like yeah, they just which, sort yeah i mean knows, i guess they a, might just have an airplane yeah like maybe he took the warehouse's like private plane or whatever who knows right or, i mean or literally it is not government. supposed to notice <laughs> yeah or yeah, we're just is... not supposed to notice it's hard to tell yeah th- what do you think the defense budget goes to <laughs> yeah like there are absolutely like there are people who like you know their hobby is you know, instead of train spotting, they do plane spotting. Like, their hobby is, like, looking at airplanes and, like, oh, that's the so-and-so flight. Which also means that, like, hey, there's all these, like, weird government aircraft that, like, don't show up on any official flight plans or on any public flight plans. What the hell are they? Yeah, and, like, (laughs) the interesting thing is because uh, mid-air collisions are considered uh, a bad time Mm -hmm. that, like, some very basic aviation equipment can just track all of the planes that fly near you. Yeah. Like, uh, 
my roommate actually has one of these little transponder boxes and you can just see if there's any uh airplanes in the sky above you yeah like we once drove across the state and the whole time he kept uh looking at his ipad connected to this thing to see if there were any uh any highway patrol aircraft up above <laughs> it's really good like there's like oh i remember reading about some guy who like just like i forget where exactly it was there was a post about it forever ago i certainly can't find it now just like set up some stuff in his house and you know keeps track of all these fucking like police planes government planes that you know don't show up on flight logs this and that there's a whole flight tracking database that's like run by volunteers like people just sort of automatically log these mm -hmm. uh like just any flights that fly near them yeah and you get a really good radius so it's like you don't need too many people volunteering to get good coverage in areas because yeah, the planes are like up there broadcasting a powerful signal in every direction so that right for exactly this purpose yeah and uh like one of the things that was noticed that some journalists noticed uh it was probably tipped off by the nerds who uh watch all these flight logs but like there was a uh experimental uh reconnaissance aircraft flown over portland in circles for like three or four hours uh during the earliest days of the protests this year oh my gosh like i actually wrote a letter to uh my or uh email to my senator asking him to look into this because the air force base in ohio that it flew out of just wouldn't say anything about what they were doing what the fuck yeah and then like later on the story was oh it was a long planned uh a long planned uh flight we needed the weather conditions in that area and it had nothing to do with you know civil unrest stuff oh of course that's yeah. completely reasonable. Right. You needed Pacific Northwest weather conditions, and so you flew over Portland, but you did it specifically on, like, March 31st or something, when uh, things were absolutely popping off. And, like, plus, like, you can listen to what their, you know, what their, all the air traffic control information, like, you can, you know, open up any radio, adjust a little bit, and suddenly you can pick up air traffic control signals. Right. Hell, that was the whole fucking plot of uh, Die Hard 2 was correct, and that, like, it's not actually that hard to, like, you know, listen in on and, in fact, jam and impersonate the signal. So, aircraft have this terrifying uh, design issue with their radio system, that still exists to this day for the most part, because legacy support is considered more important than uh, yeah the safety that would actually be improved here. Mm -hmm. uh, if two planes start broadcasting at exactly the same time, both transmissions go nowhere. Like they they just go away. <laughs> like yeah, like this about happened. Right. Uh, at some small uh 
airfield on an island off the coast of uh like just outside of the Mediterranean, just on the other side of the uh, Strait of Gibraltar. Mm -hmm. And it caused someone uh, reverse taxiing down the runway to get struck by someone doing a takeoff run. Oh my god. Yeah, it's uh, one of the worst aviation disasters in history. Fuck. But because uh, no one replaces planes very frequently... Yeah. Uh, especially private aircraft. Uh, yeah, they're fucking they, expensive. Yeah, they prioritize keeping the radio system uh, legacy supported rather than uh, supporting a system that doesn't just drop transmission occasionally. Yeah, no, that's it's very reasonable. <laughs> well, I mean, it fucking sucks that that's the world we live in. Yeah, because the, the people on the runway and the control tower, tower just both shouted stop exactly what you're doing right now and they heard none of it because both of them broadcast at the same time fuck yeah yeah my roommate is actually uh doing some uh he was doing some private pilot stuff and like it's a good way to light a boatload of money on fire but like yeah it's certainly interesting yeah, that sounds about right. It certainly seems like, uh, because, like, you can't just buy a plane. Like, you have to buy a share on a plane, and they're not really making new planes. They're not making new, like, individual, like, Cessnas or whatever. I mean, they certainly are, but, like, the useful life of a Cessna is, like, extremely long. Mm -hmm. Like, the one time I went up... I was in a uh, Cessna from 78. Oh, wow. And like, or no, it wasn't a Cessna, but it was a small craft like that. And it's a tiny aluminum tube and you're sitting shoulder to shoulder in it. <laughs> it's huh. it's actually really neat, but like... uh. It's certainly a little concerning. Like, a lot of the comforts of commercial flight are absolutely nowhere to be found. Yeah. Like, just getting the proper amount of heat into the cabin is pretty difficult. Because the outside temperature is shifting in new and weird ways. And, like, you have this little uh, carbureted engine... That's just screaming along and you get to like adjust some flaps to uh to how it routes air through uh I think just a heater box like an old school Volkswagen. Huh. Also thank you for reminding me to update the name on my ham radio registration. Oh uh, nice. <sighs> I've always thought about uh getting into ham radio, but like I don't know what I would do with it. <laughs> yeah, like, because the thing is, like, there's a lot of really cool things you can do with it. I was in the ham radio club at uh, in college, and, uh, like, sometimes we would, uh, sometimes you just, like, they have events where you uh, just try and, like, come in contact with as many people as possible, as many other hams as possible. We did one thing called uh, Soda Summits on the Air, where you, like, climb a mountain. We climbed a uh, at the time it was Harney Pink, it's now Black Elk Peak, and, like, 
did radio shit up there to try and get in contact with someone. Hey, we're broadcasting from the top of this. Right. You can you can bounce signals off the moon. I've also like a few too many times considered starting up a pirate radio station. So like, hell yeah, maybe getting a ham license is actually a bad idea in that case. Yeah, because because like, give... if you want a short list of suspects for your pirate radio broadcaster. Oh, absolutely. Like, yeah, <laughs> like, A, you, you have to give the FCC your name and address and B, like other because the whole amateur radio thing is largely self-regulating like there are actual laws governing this and those are on the test but the fcc has by and large is given a lot of the they don't have an enforcement apparatus like they don't have people in every city in those uh bbc television license vans (laughs) oh exactly like and so like the fcc doesn't even hire like cop type things like enforcement type things so what would happen is like someone else usually another ham would like Hey, this guy's broadcasting when they're not supposed to be, and then, you know, the FCC might like gets. They definitely have access to goons. Like I have, I've oh, read yeah. stories where a guy like made a, basically a phony cell phone tower. Like he uh, was presenting at DEF CON or whatever that you can make a phony cell phone tower for like two or three hundred bucks worth of materials. And so we I built s- this thing, and he's giving his talk, and he's like. Okay, so if any of you are on Sprint or T-Mobile, your phone calls are now going through this thing. Like, I can hear them, I can hear all your calls, I can intercept all your text messages or whatever. Yeah. And, like, there's, like, men in black. There's, like, dudes in suits with, like, those gun-shaped directional antenna things, like, sweeping this guy out. But of course it's fine when the cops do it. Yeah, like, (laughs) because they have to find him and they're like, you have to turn that off. Like, that thing is illegal. It's extremely illegal. You have to stop. Right. Yeah, except uh, there are a lot of police departments with uh, with that sort of equipment these days. Yep, it's called a stingray. Yeah. Uh, so I spent a fair amount of time in uh, Adrian, Michigan, which is probably, like, an outlier in that it's a city with a population under 20,000 or whatever that has two pirate radio stations. Mm-hmm. Wow. Like it's one of them is run by a local church. The uh the guy is definitely extremely far right because he uh he believes it's his god-given right to use the airwaves as he does. And the FCC be damned. Type. And he's the one that's actually been taken to court over this. Damn. They made him stop broadcasting, but apparently they didn't make him stop broadcasting enough (laughs) because I got interested in this when I uh, drove through one of the busiest intersections in town and he had hired people to stand there holding up signs that said dial or turn to uh, 981 for the truth. (laughs) Like... (laughs) So despite him having been hauled into court before, I think twice, I think he was uh, charged and they slapped him with like a hundred dollar fine. They're like really just trying to get their point across. And then they they hauled him in again. (laughs) Like they would, you would think they would like dismantle the station, right? Like they would confiscate the equipment. 
Right. And like this guy just insists it's his right to do this. Mm. So I think at one point they did confiscate the equipment and he just bought more equipment. And then the other one, uh, no one's really ever come forward as being the person in charge of this. But uh, Lunaway Prison Radio uh, used to broadcast all the time. Now it only does a Halloween broadcast. That's reasonable. And yeah, it was uh, a pirate radio station targeted at the uh, prison population in the uh, local... I don't remember if it was a federal or state uh, prison. Well, like, is it an entertainment thing or is like a, all right, ah, escape, throw off your chains sort of thing? I believe it was uh, just entertainment. Like, I think they just played music for them. Like, that's the uh, that's the Halloween uh, programming anyway, is just that makes sense. a music playlist. Yeah, I think it was just someone who liked to do it. And <laughs> yeah, it, it does seem fun. I think I would run into the the problem that we found out in that King of the Hill episode where like if you have a so like if you have a soapbox and you can use it 24 hours a day eventually you're going to run out of stuff to talk about. Right. Yeah, I mean the nice part with pirate radio is you really don't want to broadcast 24 hours. Yeah, that's reasonable. Like Yeah, you don't want those you FCC goons with the directional antenna times. to find you. Right. Yeah, if you broadcast at consistent times, you know, you you can maybe develop some sort of audience, but you have no way of ever knowing. Yeah. But at the very least, you can shout into the void for a very long time. <laughs> and that just sounds like fun. Like, I've always had a... They don't have them right. anymore, but you ever hear about these border blasters where people would set up these, like, really powerful radio stations, like, just south of the U.S.-Mexico border? Because, like, yeah. you can't... Yeah, because there's, you know, there's FCC rules on how, like, powerful you can build a, you know, a U.S. commercial, you know, FM station, but they don't, right. the laws are much looser in Mexico, so, like, you can just build a station in Tijuana or whatever, and, like, broadcast so hard they'll hear you in California. And at one point, like, uh, Sealand was broadcasting pirate radio to the, uh, to the coast of, uh, Britain. Are you familiar with Sealand? I, I know that the Principality of Sealand, is that the one that's just, that's like on an oil rig? On an old oil uh, rig that some guy decided he was in charge of? It was once an artillery rig that's for, uh, for the Great War. Uh, yeah, and the British government had nothing to do with it. So, like, eventually they sold it to this guy and... At the time, they made no claim of it being part of their waters, like their territorial waters. So he just sort of decided it was his own nation. Yeah, I'm looking at the dude's website right now. Like, that for uh, for forty five dollars, you can become a lord, lady, baron, or baroness of Sealand. Yeah, and like, you have to check who that is, because like, there are. People selling fraudulent Sealand passports, too. Oh, no. Uh, they're mostly from the uh, the government in exile in Amsterdam. I forgot about this. <laughs> like, like, someone else took over Sealand. So, I'm convinced. I am genuinely convinced that this was a PR stunt 
Yeah. Because the prince of Sealand was on the platform at the time, and they took him hostage, and he single-handedly defeated and captured this band of mercenaries to retake his home and just, like, kicked these mercenaries out single-handedly while they had him as a hostage. And it seems so unlikely. It seems like it's just rich dude myth-making. Yeah. Like... <laughs> it's not like anyone else was there. Like, you kind of have to take his word for it. Right. Yeah, and you can be like... You tell your friend, hire some mercenaries. You you tell the mercenaries what's going on. Like, yeah, yeah this is this is all just fake. But we're going to, you know... Charter a helicopter and some speedboats. We're going to do a fast rope descent onto this <laughs> onto this little platform and take this guy's son hostage. But be nice to him. He's rich. And then we're going to pretend like he took it back the uh the platform from us. Uh... Yeah. And then after that they've insisted that they're the uh rightful government in exile. Wait, so the so now the prince is in charge and like the rest of his family is in exile or No, uh both the prince and the king uh retained control. Mm -hmm. Uh with the exception of about 4 or 6 hours or so. Yeah. And then the government in exile is some guy who wanted to develop on the platform, like he was in talks with the king of Sealand. To develop it and, like, build a casino and resort mm. because there's no laws in international waters yeah. or whatever. <laughs> like, Yeah, like, you can so, have some fun out there. Right. Presumably, it'd be a pretty good time, yeah. but uh, these rich dudes were just like, no, I just sort of have this place I can go, like, where no one else is, and technically the law doesn't apply to me out there. <laughs> Yeah, like, I'm looking at a picture of it. It seems like a pretty fun little place to hang out, like a little fort, like a little right. fort in international waters. Like, it'd be it, rad. It like, would absolutely rule. Like, get some folks together, just, like, play video games all, all weekend or whatever. That would right. rule. Yeah, if I had a boatload of money, starting my own micronation would be pretty up there on uh, my list, which makes yeah. me sound like I'm real deep into sovereign citizen stuff, but, like, <laughs> it just seems like a good time. Yeah, exactly like like, <laughs> like i you know it would rule to like you know i call myself princess mostly as because it's i like the sound of it and it's a it's my dom sobriquet as a sex thing but it would also rule to like oh no dear i'm i'm actually in charge of this weird little oil derrick off the coast she comes right. sometime it's a delight ah uh, anyways uh the next thing in my notes is uh already brings out this hypno firework Yep. Yeah. Uh, back to the hypno kink. Uh, <laughs> like he hands uh, Micah and Pete some welder's goggles, essentially, so that they don't get hypnotized by this uh, firework. Which, okay, I didn't note the name of the firework. It's it some like sort of ancient Chinese firework. Yeah. That ice, apparently, ice Mrs. Frederick will be very upset if. Uh, if she finds out that Artie fired one of these off, because they're very rare these days. Yeah. I think it was called Ice Blossom or something like that. That sounds right. Mm -hmm. And 
everyone is absolutely dazzled by it. So they just waltz right in. And there's a very conveniently placed window in the crime scene room so that the uh, guys in like head to toe Tyvek suits uh, checking out the crime scene are also dazzled. If there was like a window into this room, couldn't they have like just gotten a telescope? Right. Yeah. Like they've been uh, staking out this place. And, like, we're considering a descent from a skylight or something. Yeah, like, Pete was like, okay, we'll crawl into this vent on the roof, on our bellies, underneath the motion sensors. Right. Just walk around to the other side of the building. Yeah, like, there's a window, Look in but... through the window. <laughs> like, even if it's one of those windows that doesn't open. Like, even if it's, like, a bulletproof glass window that doesn't open, you can look through it. Like, right. You can you get can... a pretty good idea of what's going on. Like, yeah. Because what they find in there is this, essentially, a katamari in the middle of the room. Like, it's just every loose object in the room smashed together into one big ball. Including uh, one person. At least one person. It's, uh, you know what it reminds me of? If you've ever been to the Museum of Popular Culture in Seattle, they have a, a sculpture with, like, that's, I put it in the discord chat that we're using like it's pretty much just like a two-story like cone with a bunch of guitars okay wrapped around a structure it looks like that or like the stack of cars that's in like uh the chicago land area i don't know where uh pete thinks it's quote freaky mcfreakerson (laughs) oh yeah yeah, it's definitely Freaky McFreakerson. Uh, Artie describes it as uh, removing matter from space until uh, everything comes whooshing toward it. Yeah, sure, why not? Yeah, it, it seems a little uh, dubious as far as like the physics of that goes, but like, I'm not going to question it. <laughs> yeah, he's the he's the expert. Right. And then we finally find out uh, what this sword does, because Micah has been pressing him for, hey, what are we actually up against? And he just, like, instead of saying this is what it does, he spends just as much time flippantly telling her it's none of her business and go do her job. Oh, of course. (laughs) Like, I don't understand why Artie is so insistent on this. He could just say, Oh yeah, it light splits in its path. Uh, Which he does eventually, but not like... He has to, like, be all dodgy about it, and he has to, like, give it, like, the the whole, like, weeb explanation. Like, ah, it's been folded a million times. It's Adam's thick at the blade. It's capable of cutting light in half. And he does this, like, weird thing with the bird explanation. Yeah. Yeah, he uh, he talks about how birds fly in a V formation because it makes it easier to fly. And then he's like, just like that, except uh, with light. And Mike is like, so it makes the user invisible? And he's like, no. And then he sort of rambles to himself a bit. And then he's like, yeah, yeah, invisible. <laughs> Uh, okay, I'm gonna close the Sealand website after this, but 
<laughs> for only six pounds every six months, you can have your own Sealand personalized email address. Instead of closing it, you need to uh, instead go to the title bar and navigate to the Micronations wiki. <laughs> I think I don't recall if it's a fandom wiki or something. It's very unprofessional, but like I just love surfing the Micronations wiki. Oh, oh, this is a they're using Media Wiki. It's the same software Wikipedia uses. Oh, okay. So they're self-hosting at least or something along those lines. Yeah. But Artie uh, knows exactly who to look up whenever he's seen that it's definitely the implosion grenade. Which, it seems like they put in a lot of effort to find this out when they already knew what was up. Yeah, like, it's... And I get that, like, kind of the, the crux of this episode is Artie is dodgy and hides information when he doesn't need to, and in fact probably should not be. But Christ, we spend a lot of time waiting for Artie to, like, tell us tell Pete and Micah something they really need to know. Yeah. Yeah, and like, Artie just sort of goes there to find out that the dude's been turned to dust. Dust, Like, yeah. his clothes are fine, but he's all dust. Uh, Pete asks Lena for help finding out where the, uh, what's it called? The the thing that separates the, the handguard that separates the handle from the blade, the, the it starts Suba. with an O. Or, yeah, it's the Suba. I wrote this one down because I kept saying it and I knew it would come up. Yeah, and we discovered that the Suba was given to Woodrow Wilson in the 20s. Uh, we already touched on that. And so the conclusion is maybe it doesn't make it, maybe the sword doesn't make anyone invisible because it's not complete. It doesn't have its Suba. Mm. Uh, Artie in Kluger Electronics, the electronics guy that uh, that made the implosion grenades, discovers a blueprint for the implosion grenades, just sort of like sitting out conveniently for him to pick up. Yeah, well, because he was just ma he was making the implosion grenades right before he died, I guess. But it's right. It's also a very I don't know, it it does seem a little too convenient, especially, like, is this the guy who makes implosion grenades? If so, why does he have, like, a professional blueprint that is presumably just for his own use? Right, yeah, it's one of those things, if it's some deeply held trade secret that he's the only one who can do this, which I'm pretty sure that's the implication here. Yeah. Or, like, like just he... don't keep blueprints that are readable by other people. Yeah, like, it's it's more work to put them into this professional blueprint format right. than it is to, and like... and you probably have to hire someone to do it, which means someone's going to learn everything they need to know about your uh, implosion yeah. grenades. Like, uh, draftsmanship yeah, like, is a... Like, it's a trade in itself. Yeah, like, you need to find someone who has... Who can, like, has access to that blueprint printing machine. Those things are... It's not just, like, a big printer. Maybe it is these days, but even if it is, do you have a big printer? I mean, my shop does. Yeah. Do you need uh, color or black and white? We have one of each. They call it a plotter. 
Oh, yeah, it makes sense. Uh, we never use it, though. <laughs> we almost never use it. Well, but, yeah, I needed something big printed. Nearly every factory has a plotter, honestly. Makes sense. Uh, and, yeah, the interesting thing, uh, at one point I was looking for a particular, uh, blueprint and I was just downloading something that looked like it might be it from our, uh, big web-based, uh, program tracking software. And, like, I discovered that this was someone's, uh, wiring schematic and it had all of these warnings uh that this is their intellectual property do not steal uh you'll you will be prosecuted <laughs> but then i couldn't help but discover that i knew the entirety of the wiring schematic at a glance because it was 17 leds in series <laughs> like there it is I forget what company this was that claimed they owned the rights to this, but uh, you now know everything you need to know to construct one of these. <laughs> uh, welcome to Warehouse 69, the uh, internet's most uh, crime, not advocating, but most crime considering Warehouse 13 podcast. I would argue there is no way that's actually a crime. Describing a, a circuit as 17 LEDs in series... There is no way that's actually uh, something you can copyright. Oh, no, of course not. There's like, <laughs> there's no way. But, uh, you know, we did talk about uh, the fun things you can do with air traffic control radios and which, which government <laughs> aircraft you can keep tabs on. And pirate radio and... Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff. <laughs> it's It's been an interesting episode so far. Yeah, I'm a supervillain. What's your excuse? Uh... <laughs> So, next thing I have on my list is, uh, there is no Woodrow Wilson Museum of Peace, because mostly, it would be weird if there was, given that he, um, brought the United States into World War One. but, uh... I mean, they gave Kissinger a Nobel Peace Prize, so... Yeah. Like, if you have a Museum of Peace named after you, I kinda lean more towards it being, you know, specifically because you don't want your outward image to be that you actually contributed to oh, like, unending war. Yeah, like, we, we've talked about this. That's why, like, Alfred Nobel, like, created his Peace Prize is, like, because he made he made fucking explosives for war, and he didn't want to be remembered for that. I'm waiting to hear who, uh, who wins this Friday, since, uh, Trump was nominated. <laughs> <laughs> We would like to give it to COVID-19 for killing Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, so I lived in South Dakota for a number of years. And uh, as we know, South, well, I don't know if the general, but South Dakota was uh, once home to George McGovern, who was uh, who ran for president once upon a time. He lost, obviously. He, uh, was against war too much and some other stuff, but, uh, he was from South Dakota, and there's a lot of, like, roadside attractions in South Dakota I regret not going to. The Mitchell Corn Palace, the Cosmos Mystery Area, a bunch of them. And uh, I really want to find out what the hell is at the George McGovern, like, presidential library or whatever. It's not called that, but it's like the George McGovern Museum. 
Okay. Like, what do you put in the museum for this guy who was basically famous for losing an election? Right. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, we sure do like to, uh, make museums to our brave great men of this country, which, I don't know, we, uh, I think to some extent it's a matter of status where you've achieved a level of recognition that you get a museum named after you. Yeah, like, don't get me wrong, George McGovern, like, absolutely did do things. Like, you know, he was a U.S. senator, he, you know, worked, he was in Kennedy's cabinet and such. But he also, I'm looking at the electoral map in 72 when he was the Democratic candidate. He won... One state in D.C. Oh, yeah. He didn't even win his home state of South Dakota. Historical campaign failure. Yeah. Like. (laughs) We'll probably never see that ever again. Yeah, it was. Hopefully because the Electoral College doesn't exist that long, but uh, I don't know We can only hope. But it's it's extremely hilarious how bad he lost. I mean, I kind of, I would have preferred he won. I, I. I think he would have done better at his president than Nixon. Speaking of uh, the elections, I'm extremely disappointed that I missed the uh, the Biden uh, rally that was like 15 minutes from my house. I would have had to take the day off work, but I really wanted to see not Biden. I don't really care to see uh, Joe Biden. I wanted to see his fucking train. He has a train? He chartered a train. Like, after the uh, debates in Cleveland, oh, he took he's Amtrak the train. Joe. Yeah, he literally called up Amtrak like, hey, can you hook me up with a train? And he just did a whistle stop tour of all of these tiny train stations across Ohio and Pennsylvania. <laughs> Is it, we ta- I think we talked about this last time. Like... It- or I was posting about it, like, is is America ready for its first train-liker president in, like, a hundred years? Right. Uh, so, today I posted about uh, my idea that the Biden campaign absolutely should take. If Joe Biden becomes president, he should introduce a presidential train. And we're gonna call it Space Force One. <laughs> 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 like... Like, imagine it. Because, like, it's really expensive to armor a car, to keep a car, you know, armored and running. It's really expensive to fly planes around. Yeah, especially one that's like. Joe just wants to go home to Scranton on the weekends and just be home. Yeah. That's why he's Amtrak Joe. He he rides the train back and forth to DC once a week. I thought it was every night. No, no, he would just uh, show up Monday and leave on Friday. Yeah. Which is how a lot of people are, but a lot of people do it by flying. Yeah, they fly or drive, but, you know, Joe doesn't drive, and, well, he doesn't like to drive, and, yeah. Yeah, and, like, flying would cost a lot and is pretty pointless when you live where he does. Yeah, and also, also, like, he's, when you're vice president, you don't, I I don't know if he did that when he was vice president. He never did that as a senator. Right. Yeah, but uh, that was that's one of the few things like I've decided if I'm going to f- 
force myself to hold my nose and vote. I'm mm-hmm. only going to read things about Joe Biden that involve trains because oh, just perfect. E- everything, everything train related. I'm on board. Choo choo. Like we used to have presidential trains. I think we should bring it back. Right. And like, there's some really good ones. Like, uh, I know we talked about this before, the train that crashed into uh, Penn Station in uh, D.C. Like, what if we brought that train out of retirement? He could cruise around the country in the world's safest steam engine because it's been crash tested. (laughs) (laughs) It's still good. It's right there. (laughs) Right. And no one's using it. Yeah. And, like, either way, the idea of... Like, armored cars wreck roadways. Like, mm-hmm. they just absolutely destroy them. So, like, if you're going to go on a tour across the country to do this or that, like, just take a train. You yeah. can put all the armor you want on a train. It won't care. Yeah, like, <laughs> you know, once it gets up to speed, you know, whatever. And right. you get to be in all these, like, really cool, uh, you know, cool old train stations. Yeah. You you get a great public place for where everyone knows where you're going to show up. I mean, in the rare places that actually have good stations. Yeah. I mean, the one that was near me, it, it's literally just a concrete platform. Yeah. Like, I, I turned on some news broadcast. I think it was, like, when they were... No, it couldn't have been when they were breaking the news about Trump having COVID, because... Day after the debate, maybe, but like they just had the cameras fixed on about a dozen empty chairs on an Amtrak platform (laughs) waiting for Joe Biden to turn up. (laughs) It was so good. (laughs) Like they just were live streaming that on the news for like two hours. Okay, oh, so gotta love the twenty-four hour news cycle. Uh, these chairs are waiting for Joe Biden. Okay, so I I still have George McGovern's Wikipedia page open. He was born in Mitchell, South Dakota, which is like the second or third largest city in South Dakota. It's pretty big. And okay. uh, I know I've mentioned the Mitchell Corn Palace before. I don't know if I. <laughs> what do you know about the Mitchell Corn Palace? I have no idea whatsoever about the Mitchell Corn Palace. Okay, so. I'm posting a picture of it for those of you at home. Imagine like, so this is downtown. It's like, imagine a, it's a big building. It's about the size of like, I've, I've been told inside is like a gymnasium. Like it's a, it's a defense space. They rent it out for like high school proms and whatnot. It's like oh. a big, big building with like those onion domes on it. And it's like a castle kind of sort of. But If you I know. could roll up to this place and like, I'm having a wedding here. Like. Oh. So Not there's actually wedding. a fucking billboard like, <laughs> for this place with like a guy like carrying a lady like like you would carry your your new wife across the threshold and it says take your princess to her palace Mitchell Corn Palace and it, <laughs> it's called the Mitchell Corn Palace because it's decorated with corn like oh that is beautiful yeah like you can see on the outside there's like portraits of people it like it's it's decorated with like that colored corn fantastic and apparently they like redo it every they used to redo it every year now it's every couple of years but like there were folks there who uh like friends of mine who like 
they had their high school prom in here. Like, if you, like, go to high school in Mitchell, you probably have your prom or your, your homecoming at the Mitchell Corn Palace. Listeners, feel free to check the show notes. I'll be putting a link to this image in the uh, description for this episode. Bless you. You can you can look up Mitchell Corn Palace. Uh, and like George McGovern didn't even have anything to do with it. They just like put that picture there, like the Corn Palace, a longtime site of McGovern's hometown of Mitchell, South Dakota. That was, that's that's the most interesting picture you can take. Of Mitchell, South Dakota. Oh yeah, for sure. I I couldn't think of a single more interesting place in the entire state of South Dakota. <laughs> yeah, like Mount Rushmore's like it's pretty. It's on the other half of the state. It's a several hour drive away. You're not going all the way over there. Right, and who cares? It's some mountain that was defaced by a racist. Yeah, the Corn Palace is you know bizarre, but it's you know distinctly less you know national shamey it is a monument to workers and we should be proud of it (laughs) welcome to warehouse 69 the internet's finest mitchell corn palace stand podcast they do call themselves the world's only corn palace which is asking for someone to also make a corn palace right i gotta make them change the signs (laughs) (laughs) oh exactly like even going to like south making Corrected to South Dakota's only corn palace. Right. Okay, so uh, to come on back around, <laughs> we uh, we we are looking for the Suba. Uh, Pete called up Lena, had Lena look it up on the computer, but was very roundabout about asking yeah. for it. He asked her if Artie were there, what would he be looking for? Yeah. Which. I think like Lena, she's never revealed this to the uh, the rest of the people there, but I think like it's supposed to suggest that she's a lot more capable and was kind of uh, feeling a little I don't Patronized know under... or like yeah she was waiting for him to get to the point like yeah I know what right. you're doing you're not being clever just like ask me for what you want <laughs> right. And then Pete was very excited that his clever plan worked. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, he was like, score one for Latimer. His bastard plan of calling and asking. So, uh, we see the, uh, I believe the head of the Japanese uh, consulate or whatever is talking to Dickinson and drops a file on his desk. Yeah, yeah. On your, your agents, your agents, Latimer and whatever Mike's last name is, are compromised. Right. And there's some stuff about Artie in there too. Ooh. Ooh. And so Artie is a. Uh, Having a little get together with an old flame because he has nothing better to do in the middle of this uh, investigation. I know we just got distracted by corn palaces, but like he probably should focus a little better. Well, it's because it's because like so Artie and his I think we we know is now named James. Like 
I think at this point we know Artie and James used to be partners, and they were both going after this girl. And Carol. she picked, yeah, they're, and they're both going after Carol, and Carol picked James over Artie. And Artie is like unable to make it through this conversation without just like matter of factly twisting the knife. Yeah, he keeps like being really weird about it, and. Yeah, it, it's a bad look for you, Artie. Like, uh, you got some things you need to, like, really interrogate about your uh, attitude. Yeah, like, because he's asking this lady for information, and he cannot stop, like, he cannot stop, like, saying shitty things or, like, whatever. Like, you can blame me. You know, that's fine. But I also want you to know that this is your fault. You brought this on yourself. Make up your mind. Right. Oh, no, that that he was just like being super patronizing. Like he was like, yeah, you can blame me if it makes it easier for you. But it's totally your fucking fault. Yeah. Like, you know, you picked him. You know, this is your right. fault. You made the wrong choice. And he's being very weird about it. And like, she does not know anything. Or at least she she says she doesn't. And she doesn't really show up again this episode. Right. And it- we swing back to uh, to Micah and Pete, and they're looking to steal the Suba uh, because it's clearly the next target. Mm-hmm. And uh, Micah is still quite worked up about how she feels Artie is not forthcoming enough and uh, doesn't really care about them. Mm -hmm. And Pete is just the picture of, like, he is 100% team Artie. Like, you couldn't tell him anything to change his mind. Mm -hmm. And uh, he suggests that Artie doesn't think we're red shirts. We talked about this in the last episode. Yeah, like, you know, Pete loves his he loves his pop culture references, and he's very weirdly surprised and happy that Mika understood that very common cultural touchstone. Right. Yeah, he was he was hype for that. Yeah, he like grabs her by the shoulders, like, "Thank you." <laughs> like, and Pete, then, you uh... keep making fun of her for being a nerd. Like, I would. Think you'd have, you would assume she would get that, right? Yeah, although she's a book nerd. Yeah. Uh, we see them sort of try and uh, roll on up into this place. I have no idea what this place is. I'm very confused. It's there. It's the Woodrow Wilson Museum of Peace, right? Is it okay? Yeah, like there's, a, there's a, yeah, Pete and Micah are because the. Yeah, you know, the Japanese government gave the Suba to the United States in the twenties, and it was it's kept here at the Woodrow Wilson Museum of Peace, which does not exist. That's how we got on this a tangent okay. earlier. So and, we're going to put a pin in that for like the shortest moment. Yeah. Uh, there's a guy in a mask that they see, and clearly he's a bad guy. Mm-hmm. He's stolen the Suba, and they try and Tesla him, but uh, he Teslas them. Yeah, he's got his Tesla shoots red lightning, so you know he's the bad guy. Right. Oh, first he Teslas two of uh, Dickinson's agents, mm-hmm. and they go down. Uh, Pete and Micah 
Pete tries to Tesla him, and there's just like a big. Uh, they Tesla at the same time, and there's a big clash, and it knocks b- both of them down. And our masked man runs off, but uh, Pete and Micah manage to recover the Suba. And then, and then uh, the agents who got uh, Tesla'd recover extremely quickly and uh, have them at gunpoint. Yeah. And of course, they don't remember our. Uh, they don't remember because they were just Tesla'd. Right. Yeah. They don't remember Mask Guy. So they think it's just uh, Pete and Micah, who they like knew from around the office before this, just yeah. like hit them with a stun gun. Yeah. And then they Sorry, they handcuff them and are like talking to them about like what the hell the deal is. And Dickinson rolls in and tells them to get out of here and sits down in front of Pete and Micah. But they're in a kitchen. Yeah. Like this is just a kitchen in like apparently this Woodrow Wilson Museum is just like a house mostly. Yeah. Like that's the word. Like, a is, big is, opulent house. Yeah. It like, has like a balcony and shit. Yeah, like, is it is this supposed to be Woodrow Wilson's house? Like, is that the implication? That that was strange. Like, is, yeah, like, I because, have no idea. Because the real Woodrow Wilson Presidential Library Museum is a in Virginia, not in D.C. And B, there's no difference. <laughs> like, yeah, I know, I know. There, depending on what part of Virginia, Virginia is a pretty big state. Yeah, exactly. I don't know if it's like that. The real one is that close to DC. I don't know, but like that one, like I'm looking at it now, and like it is. I don't know if it's his house, but it's it's a house. It's his, it's the place he was born. So, maybe that's common for presidential museums like this, is to like be their house. I mean, we have in my town a house that's been converted into a museum for some. Not even remotely famous painter that's from here. Mm-hmm. So, but, like, like yeah. it's also just a very normal house. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, I think, I guess the implication is that this used to be Woodrow Wilson's house and then they turned it into his library after he was president. Right. And the file that the, uh, that, Ogawa, the Asian agent, dropped at uh, at Dickinson's desk. Uh, Dickinson goes ahead and passes along to Pete and Micah. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I looked into your new boss. You, you guys should get out while this is still just like a slight detour in an otherwise good career. And he lets him off, but he insists on having his agents take them and put them on a plane. Mm-hmm. Micah spends a lot of time in the back of this uh, this nondescript black SUV. Uh, that's clearly a government SUV, of course. Yeah. Uh, pantomiming that Pete should just shoot the agents. And yeah. Pete's like, uh, no. No, that's not what I'm going to do. And so Micah just sort of grabs his Tesla and shoots him. Well, like, I think he figures that out. He's like, you do (laughs) it. And then he, he, like, pulls his jacket back so she can do it. And then she takes a weirdly long time to, like, 
a weirdly long time to, like, aim the Tesla at these guys where they absolutely should have noticed. Right, yeah. I mean, they have a rearview mirror, like, and you probably shouldn't leave the two people you're uh, supposed to be escorting to the airport to leave the, leave the city. Yeah. And just, like, ignore them in the backseat. But Pete and Micah run off, having been freed. Uh, the car just sort of idles into a newspaper box. Which falls over extremely easily. Yeah, those are surprisingly light. Yeah. As I don't think there are newspaper boxes anywhere anymore. I think there's still a couple, but like... Yeah, you see them sometimes downtown, like, uh... But they usually have, like, you know, I live in near Seattle, so it's, like, The Stranger or those other, like, weeklies. Okay. Yeah, not, I know a so lot of the... Not so much the ones for the daily papers. A lot of the ones around me have been converted to free, mm-hmm. and they just are constantly unlocked, and you can just get ads out of them. Yeah. Same. Like, like okay, the... cool, it's a box that doesn't get the newspapers wet. I guess that works. Yeah, like... It's the same way. Like, they, I remember when I was a kid, they had newspaper boxes for like the Seattle Times or whatever. But now you can only get them for like the Stranger, like things that are free and ad supported. Not like you don't have to put money in them. Right. Yeah, we don't. Ours are just strictly ads. We don't have like local freeish papers. Mm-hmm. Back in Colorado, you could uh, you you could uh, get the Onion out of them. Nice. And it was always a, you know, a fun thing to do on the way to high school in the morning was, uh, oh, you know, it's Monday. There's a new onion. Ah, those were the days. Uh, and uh, at some so, point during all this, we go back, I think, actually, earlier, like, we see Artie and Miss Frederick are talking at the same bar after he chases that lady away, after he chases Carol away. Yeah, and they have a Mrs. Com- Frederick just sort of pops up like she normally does. Yeah, and they have some conversation about, uh, you know, you know, why are you harassing this lady? And Ari's like, oh, look, it's it's James. And she's like, you don't have any evidence. Knock this off. You should stop. And then Artie does not stop. Right. Can't stop. Won't stop. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Pete and Micah go to their hotel and they start pouring over these documents that uh, suggest that Artie is guilty of treason uh, for selling secrets to the Russians. Yep. He loves doing that treason. to be specific. Yeah. NSA agent, this and that. Right. Yeah, he was an NSA codebreaker, apparently. Mm-hmm. He was decrypting Russian uh, transmissions or something. Yeah, yeah. During the height of the Cold War. Yeah, letters, transmissions, everything. You name it. Right. And he started selling, uh, according to the file, secrets to the Russians. Mm -hmm. And they, uh, yeah, they apparently had a arrest warrant out for him. But Mrs. Frederick made it go away. Mm-hmm. And he changed his name and started a new life. Yeah. So instead of being Artie Weisfeld, he's Artie Nielsen. That sounds about right. And uh, 
they let they confront Artie about this right after, I think. Right. But it, Pete is so lawyer loyal to Artie that he practically refuses to even hear what's inside of this file. Yeah. Mike is the only one who will read it. Yeah, like yeah, Pete's like, Oh, there's no way that's him. Even though Artie says like Yes, I did it. I had my reasons. I love doing that treason. I'd do it again. I want to do right. more treason. And also, by the way, I changed my name so that the Russians wouldn't find me. Right. Which, like, as I, you know, as I was talking about earlier, like, if there is a warrant out for your arrest, you can't really go. You can't go legally changing your name. Like, you have to go to court. Like, if right. if. if I suspect, like, if you go to court to change your name, they, like, ask for your ID and stuff. And I suspect that, like, if there's a warrant out for your arrest, they do not let you leave the courthouse. Like. Yeah, Mrs. Fredrickson pulled the strings to get Artie's yeah. name changed. It wasn't just, like, he changed his name. He he was he made to disappear and reappear, essentially. Yeah, and al- and also, like, you know, like he said, he wasn't changing his name to hide from the U.S. government. He was doing it to hide from the Russians, who were apparently not happy about the arrangement. Yeah, we'll hear more about that uh, pretty soon. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Artie spends all of the time where Pete and Micah are trying to uh, get him to give them something to help free him. Oh, uh... He, Dickinson somehow confronts him and uh, arrests him for treason. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, because uh, Artie treason tries- from the seventies. I I looked it up. Apparently, uh, any federal crime that has a possible death sentence has no statute of limitations. Yeah, which is reasonable. So technically, you could do this because Artie tries to because uh, the Secret Service has the sword thing. The Suba. The, right. The Suba. And so Artie oh, yeah. breaks and into Artie's the Secret Service like, to yeah, try and get it back. he walks directly into Dickinson's office for the second time. Yeah. And then <laughs> Dick, and then he gets caught. He's holding the Suba. And, you know, and like you said, he gets arrested for treason. Which, yeah, because that makes sense. Like, it's it's the same with murder. Like, just about every state has no statute of limitations on murder. Right. Yeah, but it it doesn't make much sense for the uh, federal government to be, like, turning around and prosecuting something after they've employed a dude for 35 years. Well, but, he, you know, they're employing him in secret. This is a, this might be a sort of Operation Paperclip type deal. Right. Not, not Operation quite. Operation so, Paperclip. That's why you uh, train an AI to just make paperclips, right? <laughs> sure. It, it's when you uh, <laughs> and when you hi- when when you smuggle some Nazi scientists into the country to do it, um, right? <laughs> or at least like you know, our friend Artie has been flying under the radar for many years, and you know, Dickinson, a as we'll find out later, like has other reasons for wanting to get Artie out of the picture. Yeah, I think, honestly, he has some genuine concern for agents that he once was in charge of. Yeah, like, he's, I, yeah, I think he's genuinely, like, concerned about Pete and Micah, or at least, like, he thinks he's helping them by getting them out of the warehouse, which... Right. 
it's a little bit people are stepping on his toes taking away his agents blah 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 yeah but also like these are co-workers of his and he doesn't understand like what's going on and but he is also doing some back alley dealings with uh our friend with our friend from the japanese embassy I think pretty much all of that's above board. He was supposed to give it back to the Japanese because they were going to take it back overseas for some reason. Yeah, but the way the ja- but the way the the Japanese ambassador says like I have my sources just like you have yours and we don't want to be causing an international incident, do we? And stuff like that. Oh, uh, yeah, I do think that uh the Japanese embassy was uh leaning on him. Yeah. They they wanted this to go away quietly, mm-hmm. and they figured, you know, just suggesting that it could become an issue was enough to do that. Yeah, and well, that and the fact that the Japanese ambassador gave these documents that were supposed to have been squelched under the rug, covered up, like, you know, no one should have access to Artie's file, right? That was supposed right. to be top secret and covered up. But it got uncovered I think, by I someone think strictly, the Japanese ambassador knows. Yeah, strictly, it wasn't even in the file. It was gone from the file. Oh, exactly. Like, you know, th- this like tr- there was no way to look it up. Oh, exactly. Like, this was, yeah, like, this was, you know, super top secret, like, hidden or whatever. Yeah. Also, it happened in the late 70s, so, like, if it got expunged from his records, uh, it wouldn't get digitized to where you can suddenly find it again. Yeah, like, and this was clearly, like, an original document. When you take it out document. of someone's records, you can just sort of, like, dump it into a shredder. Yeah. So, and like, this it's was... a lot harder these days. Yeah, and, like, and this was clearly, like, an original document, you know, right. it had, it had a, you know, original glossy photos of him, of him and everything. Probably stolen from the warehouse, given what we find out later. And that it's been implied that the villain of this piece, not even implied, like pretty directly stated, that the villain of this piece is Artie's former partner. Right. Yeah, because uh, our implosion grenade guy just sort of outright says that he's his partner and... Artie addresses that it's possibly James, and it definitely is James McPherson. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we see Okawa, uh, Okawa, Ogawa. That's what it was. Uh, meeting with James, and he presents him with the Suba. James pulls the handle off of the sword like it's nothing. It seems like a bad sword design if you can just pull the handle off. Like what happens when you're swinging it? But slips the suba on, draws the sword, and sort of draws it in front of himself, like from up above, sort of A-frame shape. He pulls it down in front of him, and he disappears. Cue Artie walking into this aircraft hangar where they were doing the uh, the swap. Mm. I believe Ogawa... Well... Ogawa received a small manila envelope that was stuffed full, presumably full of cash. Mm-hmm. That looked like a pretty cash-stuffed envelope, or at least it had something our, our diplomat friend wanted. Right. Yeah, small, but, like, 
fairly thick, lots of very small sheets of paper together. Uh, so Artie confronts Ogawa and asks uh, where McPherson is, and Ogawa's head just sort of falls off. Uh, which uh, is either a sudden case of head fall off syndrome or there's an invisible man with the world's sharpest sword. Yeah, uh, it's not supposed to do that. The head's supposed to stay on. Mm, I hate it when I develop a sudden case of head fall off disease. Okay, and yeah, James McPherson is being introduced and he's doing his uh, evil monologue, but is also invisible. Uh, because he's holding the sword that bends light around him. Mm. Artie apparently basically intentionally gets stabbed in order to recover this sword. Yeah, there's a really good scene before this where we see Artie, like, he's holding a gun in the Tesla and is, like, vis visibly, literally weighing them against each other and then brings the gun. Right, and yeah. It, McPherson it shows because... Artie definitely trusts a Tesla. Like he, yeah. it's not like he looked at it and is like, "No, I want, you know, something I can trust a little more." Like it would make sense if you saw Pete doing that. Like, oh, I know that my gun works. I've had yeah, my like, gun for ten years or whatever. Yeah. Meanwhile, uh, the Tesla has run out of batteries at him. But yeah, right. Artie. But in Artie's case, he uses his Tesla all the time. He's never held a gun on yeah, camera. Yeah, like, he he fully intends to kill McPherson. Right. Or at least he is absolutely willing to. Yeah, and in fact, at the end of the episode, he's sort of debriefing with uh, Mrs. Fredrickson, and she he tells her if uh, the Talmud said... If someone's coming to kill you, you wake up early and go kill them. <laughs> <sighs> and so she has a quick retort that uh, it also says, uh, don't rush into danger. Uh, you might not uh, get a miracle. Yeah, makes sense. We, uh, I do but, appreciate uh, McPherson's like villain monologue dialogue with uh, with Artie. Oh, and yeah. Artie gets, he gets run right through with this sword, and... Yeah, and McPherson's ta talking about how uh, he knows his new agents, and he knows that they're corruptible. Mmm. Fiendish. Mmm. But yeah, Artie gets run through a kind of lungish area. Yeah, so he gets stabbed pretty much straight through, and like... I don't know Probably that much right about below the collarbone. I don't know that much about getting stabbed with a sword, but I was under the impression you should not take it out because that's keeping your blood in. Yeah, in general, the first aid recommendation is you never take out a uh, a puncture wound if it's currently in. Like, don't stick it back in to cork it up. Yeah. But also, like, just don't take it out. The guidance might change a little bit if it's a six-foot-long sword, because, like, you could certainly cause worse damage by smacking into something while you're trying yeah. to get to the hospital. Yeah, I wouldn't want to walk around with that inside me, to be honest. 
Right, like, how's someone going to put you in a car and drive you to the hospital with this thing through yeah. you? And, yeah. sharpest sword in the world, it'll come out like butter. <laughs> it does not. Um... Right. He makes Pete pull it out, and it does not come out like butter. And so, Artie doesn't... So when we see him in the next scene, when, like, McPherson leaves an, an, one of those implosion grenades, they run out... We all see them jumping away. Artie is pretty spry for a guy who just got stabbed and really seems like he should be bleeding more, aside from a little stain on his shirt. Right. I mean, yeah, I think it was uh, in part convenience and in part they didn't want to portray it as a mortal wound. But it was way too high up on his body to not be a mortal wound. Yeah, it's got to have stabbed like his heart like, or his his lungs or something. It was very far to his left, so it makes sense that it wasn't the heart. He didn't just like die, but like he should have been uh, run through the lung, and like that's not as quick a death, but it's a pretty certain death. Yeah, he definitely should have been in worse shape than he was. Right. But yeah, they run away from an implosion grenade with like an exceptionally long fuse. And they get out of the hangar and the entire hangar is destroyed by this implosion grenade. It's a very like, nice it's more CGI powerful like than the last one. Yeah, there's a very nice like CGI like the warehouse crumpling. Yeah. Yeah, and they're like trying to grip onto the pavement as it's dragging them back towards the uh, hangar. <sighs> That's about it. Uh... Yeah, like I said earlier, uh, Artie talks with Mrs. Fredrickson about the uh, the fact that an old friend is back. Uh, they're both pretty concerned about this. Mrs. Fredrickson uh, says sorry for not believing you at first. And like, honestly, yeah. Like, it's ridiculous she didn't. They yeah. had already gotten eyes on the implosion grenade. He had already gotten eyes on the dude that was turned to dust for making the implosion grenade. Like, there was very little reason to believe Artie didn't have, yeah, like, he had these cough, what was he had going these, on worked out. Yeah, like, as soon as he saw these cough drops, he knew who it was. It's just that Miss yeah. Frederick didn't believe him. Yeah, and even if that wasn't the case... How many people know the implosion grenade guy? Yeah. How many people know the implosion grenade guy and these artifacts that, you know, yeah, and are like knows numerous, about the sword can turn someone to dust. Uh we already know he had a Tesla, like mm -hmm. maybe we didn't know that at the time when uh Artie's in the restaurant. Yeah, because like because the whole point of that scene is like Artie has really not been giving that much support to Pete and Micah, and he doesn't even know they're in police custody. Right. Yeah, and uh, so, I don't know. It seems a little weird that uh, Mrs. Fredrickson uh, would have to come around on this. Like, apparently this is something Artie's done before, is get real worked up about uh, James McPherson when it wasn't actually yeah it's maybe reasonable like Artie is you know he says he he didn't say the word vibe but like a similar sort like 
Miss Frederick yeah. says, like, he, you know, you get these intuitions, then you, you, you jump to conclusions and you stick with them even when they're not correct. Yeah, Carol brought up his intuition. Mm, that's what She's it was. like, there you go again, talking in riddles and intuition. That's what it was. So, yeah, apparently uh, when they're scouting for people to work in the warehouse, they look for men with a sense of intuition and women with, like, encyclopedic depth of knowledge. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, I think we've seen this uh, in... At least three examples. Uh, the the two genders, the uh, <laughs> right. the vi the vibe getter and the the bookstore nerd. Right. <laughs> Speaking of, Pete gets a pretty good vibe earlier in this episode when like everything goes all blurry for a little bit because he's getting a hell of a vibe. Like, like apparently about when Ogawa, the, huh? I about think so. Him finally recognizing Ogawa. It may have been. I, from where it is in my notes, it's uh, you know, after Artie mentions doing the, it's Artie mentions doing the treason. Uh, Dickinson shows up and like, hey, it's time for you guys to go. I, my dudes are gonna I, I, escort you to the airport. Pete gets yeah. a vibe. I think yeah about Ogawa and like it all makes sense to him because he yeah because right. then he's he's talking with Mike about like I figured it out. It's Ogawa. You got to trust me. And then the next thing in my notes after that is uh, they're taking them to Dallas Airport, which is an airport I have a special relationship with because I once spent over 24 hours there. <laughs> yeah, I've flown into Dulles once, but it was a long time ago. I don't remember much about it. It's... Other than that, when we landed, I got out, walked out, and my aunt was waiting there with her car. So, like, we weren't stuck there. For even as long as, like, your average traveler is, because yeah. most people have to go rent a car and stuff. Yeah. I don't know with that. Dulles was probably one of the... I mean, it's the older airport. It's the... It's kind of the worst of the two DC airports. Reagan is the newer one. Yeah. But, honestly, that worked in my favor. Like, when I was stuck there, it was really easy to, like, you know, move the chairs together... You know, I found a place where the lights were burnt out so I could sleep in relative darkness. It was nice. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, spending the night at SeaTac, they have these hostile architecture-ass, like, wiggly couches, and the lights are always on. Fuck, that sucked. Yeah, and, like, I mean, I know you don't particularly make any money off of people sleeping in your airport, but, like, you make money off of people flying. Just give them comfortable spaces. Yeah, like... Because this is a thing that happens. Yeah, exactly. It's like, who is this for? Because it's... If they... If right. it was... I, I talked about this in an earlier episode, so I shouldn't go into it again, but, like, this is SeaTac. It's... Like, DIA, I would get. Like, they have a, a hotel attached. SeaTac right. does not have this. If SeaTac had an airport... Had a hotel attached to it, they would have gotten some of my money. And, like, think about it. If you're... Southwest or American or something, uh, like you want people to be comfortable whenever you delay their flights, yeah, or you boot them from a flight or whatever. Yeah. Like you want this to go as smoothly as possible. So don't you don't really particularly want the airports to operate where they try and make this hell for someone. Yeah, yeah. Well, because if you're an airport, if you're a, an airline. 
and the fight gets delayed overnight, you're probably already handing out vouchers and stuff. Right. Who knows, maybe it cuts hmm. into the business of those airport hotels who have a shuttle or whatnot, but I kind of doubt it. Yeah, and like, I can't imagine, uh, you know, even if my layover was going to be 24 hours, I can't imagine being like, okay, guess I'm going to go book a hotel room. Mm -hmm. I don't know, if I'm traveling for work, I definitely do, because there's yeah. no way I'm sleeping in a... Uh, airport if someone else is paying oh absolutely but i mean i can't say that i mind that i've never had to fly for work it's actually pretty nice mm -hmm. there's a couple of times i would have preferred to though i had to drive nine hours down to uh the memphis area Oof. after working for seven jesus yeah, uh, that was uh, that was a good one. Get up at six thirty a.m., roll into my hotel at midnight in Central Time, Oof. or uh, yeah, it's Central then Mountain then Pacific. Yeah, yeah. So I got like an extra hour, and it was still midnight. <sighs> Fuck, driving nine hours for work sounds like it sucks. I mean, when you get paid the whole time, and I was driving my personal car, which was a Civic with 300 plus thousand miles on it, so, like, one of my favorite things about uh, driving my personal car and getting reimbursed mileage is I could just, like, do calculations on my hourly rate at any given point, which was velocity and fuel economy dependent. Mm -hmm. And since my uh, car never turned around to tank under 40 miles to a gallon, I was doing pretty okay. Hell yeah. <laughs> uh, well, any final, any final thoughts on this episode? Uh, I'm glad to see that we finally met James McPherson. He's, uh, he's going to be our big bad for a little while coming up here, and... I think that helps it helps move the series along because like some of these episodes have really good pacing, some of them have bad pacing. But like the nice part about having uh McPherson and overall o overarching story there is even if the pacing on the episode individually is off, it always feels like you're making some type of progress. Mm. And then Join us next week where we uh, take a look at Duped, uh, episode eight Ooh, of a, Warehouse 13. That sounds like a pretty good pun title. I'm looking forward to some cloning. <laughs> uh, I wish. Uh, maybe, uh, sort of, <laughs> I guess. Oh, I can't wait. Well, until next there time. There is, oh, okay. it does feature the... Uh, pure 54 disco ball Ooh, can't fuck oh yeah can't wait all right until next time truly it was a warehouse 13 follow your dreams